welcome back to the show. Uh, you might notice very quickly on that my voice is a little bit different. Uh, some wonder if this is adult onset puberty, but it is not. It is just a cold that is altering my voice. But I'm going to tell you something. I would not let a minor cold prevent me from... There's, there, there's not a lot of people that I would do this podcast for, though, at this state of health that I'm in. There's not a lot. I mean, Tom Wright, yeah. Suzanne Sabile, yeah. Barbara Brown Taylor, yeah. Philip Yancey, yeah. Brueggemann, yeah. That sounds like a lot uh, of people. Roar. I mean, but like there, okay, there's just a few. Mm-hmm. Um, but someone else I would do this podcast for is one Jason Adam Miller. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, man. When I heard your voice, I, my hope was that if it's adult onset puberty, it might also be adult onset maturity. Wow. <laughs> wow. I'm not sure there's any sign of that. You know, it says a lot about you that you would attack a man while he's ill and while he's down, but uh, that's okay. You're not uh, that's down. All right. I'm looking at you right now. You're in the office. You look sharp. You look good. Okay. Well, no arguments here on that point, uh, but we're here. We're here uh, despite the illness. That's the point. That is the point. I'm really uh, very grateful for that. It means a lot. I feel like this particular episode we've been having to fight for for quite a while, but we're here on what is this try number three? Yeah, I wasn't going to say that. I wasn't going to tell the audience that you somehow weren't able to record not once, not twice. Um, well, it was just twice. It was twice. Uh, but that, that's, that's immaterial. That it's is been not a little, the point. It's been a little fraud, man. The last time, not only did my computer like fail to upload, but I had a backup recording going, and that somehow mm-hmm. stopped working too. Some might ascribe that to the resistance, a la Stephen Pressfield. Others might say the enemy doesn't want this to happen. I, I think that means our, our hopes should be pretty high for what's about to occur. Yeah, I, like, I like the optimism. One might also say that it is, in some ways, uh, art or life imitating art. I mean, because this podcast really is about when the podcast breaks. <laughs> that's right, that's and right. yep. there's a book title, When the World Breaks. So I feel like there's nice, nice. some sort of synchronicity that's happening. See, but, we're just being given what we need for this to be the best version for this book. Uh, exactly. That's that's the way to put it. And I'll be honest, like I've had other guests who've had technical difficulties. Um, were they twice their age of you? Yeah, they were. Um, most of them were over 80, and that's okay, but um, we're equal opportunity. So when you, when you say twice my age, you mean less than twice your age? Uh, Is that no, how that works? I, I just wanna, wow. I'm just trying to gain a frame of reference here for you know what you're referring to. There's like... There's like a year and a half that would be that window you're talking about. So let's not get lost on the details. But we're we're coming back. We've had a little bit of break on the podcast, and we're we're doing this right now. Yeah, I, I feel like um, for you to get Norsworthy kicked back off, it's fitting that you're uh, I think like your biggest advocate. Some might say your creative director, your spiritual well, guide, your spiritual director, your producer, uh, the one who's kind of called out some of your best ideas. It's fitting that hmm. we'd be the ones to get this going together. Yeah, there, there, there's something about that. There's something about that. Um, I, I guess so. I guess so. Uh, one of the things that we do know is that you have a book that has been bubbling up inside of you for years. It's been a long time. For, yeah. It's been a long time coming. And when I told my daughters that your book was finally <laughs> coming out, Adeline legitimately said her first response is, this is his first book? It's about time. Uh, I think she said, and, isn't he pretty old to be putting out his first book? 
Yeah, that might be more I think accurate. she invoked uh, my age. Yeah, yeah. She did. She did. Uh, but in some ways, that it is this ongoing process of figuring out what to do when the world breaks that has been at the center of like this, culmin- this, this thing that's been happening inside of you. When you think of like this idea of when the world breaks, the, the subtitle is Surprising Hope and Subversive Promises in the Teachings of Jesus. Why is this book, why is this held on to you for so long that made you spend, I don't know, how many years would you say you've been working on this idea? Yeah, it's been like on the back burner, working little by little for like 12 years now, and then, you know, mm-hmm. three years of more consistent work. Yeah. yeah. Why is this idea held on to you so tightly? Uh, I think f- for a couple of reasons. One is, um, forget about the book for a moment, it's just... Th- the understanding of what Jesus is doing and what he has to offer us in the world. Um, the book reflects a way that that's been growing in my own life for, for that period of time. And it's a long season of uh, maybe, you know, I kind of grew up with a, a Jesus who had a lot to say to me about my personal sin problem, um, which I think that's probably true, but he didn't, the Jesus that I had, you know, going into uh, my, I guess my thirties, didn't have a lot to say about um, suffering, didn't have a lot to say about the big broken stuff in the world. And then I feel like I've spent the last 12, 13 years um, grappling with and, and trying to understand what he has to say to us on those fronts. Uh, I also think it's, it's just um, not just me. I think a lot of us are realizing that a Jesus who only speaks to like your personal sin problem is just too small for the, the world that we're living in. And then, and then the good news is you find out that actually he was never that small to begin with. It's just maybe we hadn't heard some of the other things that he had to say. Um, yeah, and then, of course, yeah. I think those feelings have intensified since, like, 2020, where I think between um, the pandemic and the political unrest and the murder of George Floyd, and all the, I think just a lot of us have felt the fraying at a more intense level lately, and so that kind of pushed me over the edge to realizing it was time to get this thing done. Mm. I also would say that my tradition emphasized personal sin as a centerpiece of the message of Jesus. Your statement was that Jesus isn't that small, that that's just the issue. And I think from my experience uh, in my tradition, like it has become the central issue. Mm -hmm. And I hear you not saying it's not an issue, but it's not the only or the central issue. Why do you think it occupies so much time and space as being the central issue for many Christians? Uh, That's a good question. I mean, I can think of a few answers that might be true. I mean, one is, first of all, I think if, if you're confronted with and convicted about your own, your own sin, your own failures, I think, it's really important that we like give the good news that your failures aren't fatal in God, you know? And I think there's a power in that message and a truth in that message that I don't want to discount. So I think that's a part of it. I also think um, there's probably then some negative strands here. Like sometimes what can happen is religion becomes sort of a way of of avoiding or ignoring the world rather than a way of confronting it and wrestling with it. Um, and at our worst, I think we do that and our churches do that. You know, they become these little bastions that sort of help people ignore all the pain rather than wrestling with it. So there's probably some negative reasons for that happening. We could probably go back to Martin Luther and talk about the whole sure, kind sure. of Protestant tradition that we're in. And again, I think Luther recovered some really important stuff. 
I think I think he drew out of the the texts, you know, some really radical, beautiful, and liberating messages that were always there. But I think he kind of overshadowed then some of the other things that were there all, all along too. Yeah, I would wonder on maybe more of a psychological level that the personal sin thing is something that we can create an equation to solve. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. It's like A plus B equals C. You know, I, I bring my like broke my sin to the table. Jesus brings his holiness on the other side of that. There is salvation for my sin. Obviously that's a, you know, a theme in scripture that's there. Um, but I think one of the, the text that you're, you're pointing us to is the Beatitudes and the teachings of Jesus, maybe in even more general require us to do one of the things that you talk about in the book is, is deal with paradox and mystery and the sin equation like is not, doesn't have, paradox or mystery it's just like it's there and when you when we're invited to see spirituality as not just me dealing with my sin problem but to deal with the brokenness of the entire world and to make sense of suffering because suffering doesn't really ever get made sense right like it's just it's there that god is with you in it. it it seems that there is a disdain for living in paradox and in complexity and we'd rather have the simplicity that the equation of your sin jesus blood equals everything's done and then you just move on and ignore the rest dude sometimes i so my instagram discover feed i guess instagram figured out that i'm a preacher a while ago because it keeps filling my discover feed with with preachers and sometimes i watch some of these preachers and you know i'm just getting a little clip so it's not fair to judge their work but i get a little clip and I'll watch them. And some of these preachers, it seems they're, they're really obviously working with that very simple framework and it's pretty formulaic. And I get kind of jealous. I'm like, man, it's easy to, to package a really tight sermon around that kind of simple formula. And um, even in the preaching, I can feel that it's so true. a little harder, right? It's a little more complex to try to figure out how to work with people toward these mysteries when they don't fit so neatly inside that formula. I feel like you and I probably have talked about this before, so maybe this is your idea. I still from, but there's no, this isn't from you. This is a different friend. But there's something about being like a really prominent megachurch pastor, and this isn't all of them, but let's be honest, it, it's a lot of them, where you just have to be comfortable to ignore the witness of the Christian tradition over the last thousand years, where you have people on multiple sides of the issue, and you get up there and present as like, this is the only way to yeah, see it, and yeah. this is the only solution, and if you're a biblical person, if you love Jesus, if you're actually a Christian, then you think this when you go, you know, X, Y, and Z are multiple um, respected Christian leaders throughout the centuries who yeah, have yeah. said, eh, maybe it's an, another way, and there's something about that sort of simplistic formula that I do find compelling, because I if I go to someone to fix my car, just tell me what's wrong with it. If I go to someone to help with taxes, just do. if I go to a doctor, just tell me what I need to take. Um, and I think we'd like that from religious leaders to go, just make it simple for us. And I mean, I think the more that you you, you step into and wade into the teachings of Jesus, there's, there's complexity that you have to hold on to where the, you have like just... Yeah, answers that are complex. Yeah, totally. Like so, the Beatitudes are an example. I think they're I think they're yeah. mysterious and bizarre. I'm working on the Book of Romans right now for some teaching, and I keep hearing in the back of my. Have you ever heard this phrase? Um, I don't even know who originally said it, but like if you can't explain the gospel to a five year old, you don't understand the gospel. I've heard that before. Okay, but I'm like, I don't know, man. Paul needed 16 chapters in Romans to try to work it out. Yeah. You know, yeah. and um, Jesus has all these moments where people are confounded and confused and they're frustrated. And even his disciples are like, Jesus, we don't understand what you're talking about. So like, I don't think we should try to be no, you know, I like, mean, ob- obnoxiously complex. 
but also like if if it if Jesus had a harder time getting his people to get it, mm-hmm. then you have you, you might ask yourself if you've reduced it beyond yes. that place of appropriate reduction. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you look at look at the disciples. Yeah. I mean, look at Peter. I mean, he's been with Jesus for yeah, some period right. of time. He's yeah. heard this, the teachings. He's seen the. He's he's been literally in the dust of his rabbi, and still Jesus says to him halfway through, uh, "You're completely wrong. Yeah. Get behind me, Satan." That's right. yeah. And like at the very end, Peter doesn't want to see Jesus because he screwed up. He he missed the whole point of suffering. He missed the whole point of the cross, and he's he's sheepish to go. Jesus, are you? Are you going to accept me? Or are you going to welcome me back in? Like yeah, Peter, sure. three years later, is still apprehensive about being around Jesus because he doesn't understand. Yeah. So why would we think it's so simplistic that we should understand? And just like sort of we, what we do is like we take this beautiful um, eschatological banquet that we're invited into, and we try to turn it into a happy meal. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And yeah. the happy meal is just like, yeah, it, it's quick, it's accessible, but no one's ever going to say a happy meal is nourishing or good it's for you. It's not really good for us, right? I was, I was um, preaching on the book on Sunday at a church in North Carolina, and we were kind of at the end of it, I was reflecting on the Beatitudes as a whole, mm-hmm. at, and, and kind of talking about how I read them, to, na- these days I read them as, as fairly strange, and I'm like, if, 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 you don't, if you don't hear them explained as kind of strange and absurd and mysterious, like, I think we're probably missing something, and I, I think I said, um, if it's not strange, it's too small. And yeah. uh, somebody came up to me afterwards and just was reflecting on, um, and this person is an, is an artist by trade, and I wonder if that's part of why they resonated with that. But um, yeah, it, it, I used to think like if it's strange, it's frustrating, and now I think if it's not strange, it's probably suspicious. Yeah, for sure. You use the phrase about the beatitude; you call them subversive promises. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't want a subversive promise. Yeah. I just want a formula. Straightforward. Like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want a formula. Why do you think? If you're trying to describe. To someone, the reason why Jesus would use a subversive paradox, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or promise, why would he do that? So uh, one way for me thinking about that is um, there's two kinds of learning. One kind of learning is where you as the student, you come to the learning and you've already got all these categories, these buckets, these structures in your mind. And then learning just adds to those existing categories and buckets and structures, right? And sometimes right. that's useful, but... It, you know, I think Jesus, almost everything he's trying to do is the other kind of learning, which is, no, I need to actually like, like abolish those categories. I, I, need, you to, I need to get you to like surrender those buckets, like, because mm-hmm. as long as you're just trying to fit what I'm saying into the pre-existing ways that you think and live, like nothing really transformative has happened. And I'm, I'm trying to actually get in there and disrupt all of that so you can build new categories. And I think if that's what he's doing, um, if, a, if a real transformation in the mind needs to happen and not just a little new information added to our already existing categories, he's, he's got to do something more mysterious, more subversive, more absurd, more paradoxical. And it seems like that's like right out of the gate. That's how he starts to sermon on the Mount, which is, it's almost as if to say, everything I want to teach you, you're only going to be able to step into after you like surrender your categories and let me really disrupt all this stuff. Yeah. So the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Yeah. Uh, I, I love yeah. Peterson's paraphrase of that. Uh, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more room for God and God's rule. Yeah. Th- that is extremely contradictory to all the, the buckets I understand about life. I understand like the good life is when I have everything I want, when yeah. things are going the right way. Um, you described that teaching as talking about like the, the, the blessing that comes in emptiness. Yeah. That's an extremely 
subversive promise to think of emptiness as a blessing. Yeah. How have you seen emptiness as a blessing? Yeah, I mean, um, for me, the primary personal experience of that has to do with, uh, I'm like 17 years old, and I'm actually in a season of like really genuine, sincere pursuit of God. Um, in a way that I feel like teenagers can like have really beautifully and innocently sometimes, you know? And um, specifically, like, there's a, a phrase in Ephesians that Paul uses where he talks about being filled to the fullness with God. And that mm-hmm. phrase, like, meant a lot to me in that season. And so I was, like, actively praying for that, looking for that, trying to understand that and experience that. And it was right there in the middle of that season where I, I um, long story short, I, I had a, a whole batch of uh, repressed childhood memories of trauma that uh, I was completely unaware of. And mm-hmm. a lot of people who enter adulthood at some point find out that they were carrying some memories that they didn't have access to. And that was a protective measure in the mind and until later in your development, maybe the brain understood that it was time for you to be able to face that stuff. And so I got kind of blown to pieces by the um, intrusion of these memories. Um, I mean, it destroyed me. It, it sent me on a four and a half year spiral into depression that included me hospitalizing myself. Um, and we talked about that on your podcast before actually. Um, And I'm not, I'm not like happy that those things happened to me when I was young. I don't think trauma is like a good thing. Yeah. But I've come to look back on the kind of like evacuation of my heart that happened through all of that, the, the kind of emptiness. I've come to look back on that as um, an absolutely essential part of me discovering a way of being with God that's different. Um, I think when you like, when you think of God as fullness, which I think God is, but like when you think of God as fullness, that can become um, a really crazy, like um, elusive object, right? And so you're de- you're always kind of desperately yeah. seeking it. You're always kind of hunting for it, and um, that can create a kind of um, dysfunction in our relationship with God, right? Where rather than trusting that God is given to you, regardless of whether you feel it, regardless of whether you feel good about it, you know, you're always kind of seeking that feeling, um, and to sort of get robbed of that feeling of fullness, and then to discover in hindsight that the emptiness was no more of a threat to God than anything else has been like super liberating. I think it kind of hmm. helps me sort of rest in a bit of ease, believing that like God is at work in me and through me, even when I don't feel any of it, you know? Um, what, what is it liberating you from? Uh, it's liberating me from a few things. One is um, if I don't feel full of God, then there's that fear that there's something I'm doing wrong to not earn it. Right. So if I mm-hmm. would just appease God or, you know, do something to earn that feeling of fullness, so to be liberated from that fear or that shame or that sense that there's something, because like most people I know most of the time don't experience like a really big feeling of the fullness of God. But if what you've been told is that that, that, that feeling of like fullness of God all the time is what it means to be like holy or in God's presence or faithful, I mean, that can create like the, all kinds of shame and, and inferiority complexes with God. Um, I also think um, it just, it's one thing to, to, um, to me, there's like two different ways of thinking of your own soul. It's either conduit or source. Source means I, like if I'm going into something that demands something of me, then I kind of do a little inventory and I try to figure out if I have within me the things that are needed for that demand. And that demand could be loving my friends yeah. or walking through suffering or leading my church or facing a hard thing at work, you name it, right? But if I think I'm like source, then I'm going into that hard thing and I look inside and I kind of ask myself, do I have within me what, what, what is needed for this? 
And if I don't, I become fearful or I back off from it. But it's another thing to be like, oh, no, I'm, I'm a conduit. And a, a good conduit is empty sometimes, it, but it remains open, right? And so I think mm-hmm. if I can like replace the idea of um, trying to be a source of good things and, and just know that I'm a conduit for good things, then I can kind of live in flow. I can move toward hard things with less anxiety and more trust. And then it just kind of creates the possibility that I get to be surprised by the ways that God flows in and through me, even if a minute ago I didn't even feel that God was there. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like if I'm empty, it's because I haven't earned yeah. fullness by being good enough. Yeah. Of well, you know, I didn't read my Bible. I didn't. I didn't pray enough. I didn't. You know, act as a way of disciple of Jesus in every area of my life. And so it's, it's, I become the source by my performance. That's so right. my performance yeah. dictates the the fullness or not. And then if there's empty, then there's that's clearly a problem that I didn't, um, I, I, I didn't earn that. And so. Uh, to move away from that, to go, wait, wait a minute, your condo, it, it flows through you. It, it's a different perspective. And to see the blessing in emptiness is different. And I would assume that something I said last Sunday was probably influenced by this, uh, this concept that you've, you've helped me see. Uh, I was doing a series, uh, I started a series on mental health, and mm-hmm. I talked about that there is a, a blessing in there to mm-hmm. see in your emptiness, like there's nothing maybe more poor in spirit than feeling depressed mm-hmm. or anxious or uh, even moving all the way to suicidal ideations, like that there there is a peculiar blessing. And, and as I'm saying that, I feel like, man, are, are you overstepping? Um, uh, but I hear you connecting your experience uh, with mental health struggles in this chapter, talking about the blessing in there. If you're going to have someone go, hey, is there really a, a blessing for having a poverty of spirit that leads to mental illness? How would you engage with that? Well, first of all, I'd say the, the illness isn't blessed. Um, y- you are blessed mm-hmm. while you wrestle with the illness. There's a really important caveat there. We're not fetishizing suffering. We're not fetishizing mental illness. We're not, we're not trying mm-hmm. to make an idol out of any of those things. Um, and everybody's mental health journey is unique too. So... Um, you got to be really careful about what you project on other people and all that. Mm-hmm. But, but what I would say, I, I would just want to give witness to my own experience, which is um, if I look back and you, and you kind of gave me the chance to trade out another version of my personal history where those things hadn't happened and I hadn't gone through that, I would not trade it. I wouldn't take it. Um, hmm. And that, that's like, at some point that's like almost all I can say is um, I, I just know for me, um, I don't look back on that experience as a cursed experience. Um, I think mental health might be a curse. Uh, I don't mean like, you know, God curses you. I just, I just mean mental health's not good. It's not fun. And the suffering that comes with it can be hell. Um, but, Jesus, but why would you, but, but why would you not want it taken away? Because I think I got out of it more than I lost from it. I, um, hmm. And I think, um, and that's maybe that's part of what Jesus is trying to say, right? Is like, um, he just sees some of these circumstances differently than we do, you know. Again, I don't yeah. I don't think he's in favor of depression or I don't I don't think he likes that we face those hard things. I don't I don't think God is like that. I just think Jesus knows that um strangely in those hard things we're often sort of being given access to or or another another way of saying it is maybe the same things that made it possible for you to experience, say, depression, also make it possible for you to experience um, a certain kind of sensitivity to the world mm-hmm. and a certain kind of sensitivity to God. And 
again, that doesn't mean that uh, the mental illness itself is something that God loves um, and yeah. that God wouldn't want to heal. But I just think uh, Jesus sees some other things going on there too. And, and, yeah. and I do uh, as well. I think it was this chapter that you used the Ground Zero Memorial. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that, was morning. Um, that was morning. Oh, that was in morning. Okay. Well, let, let's jump to, to that one. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be shall comforted. Be comforted. Yeah. It's future, future tense, right? Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. they will be. They shall be. Um, I think in poverty of spirit, I think of mourning. Like there's, there's something that, that's gone, that, that's missing. Yeah. And obviously, like you just said, you, you connected it to the Ground Zero uh, Memorial, which if you've ever had the opportunity to be there, it's a really breathtaking memorial because it's and I don't have a great deal of experience with a, a ton of these sort of like memorial sites, but what it is, is it, it's nothing like there is a, an absence there. Um, why did you find that so compelling as a way to illustrate like the blessing of mourning? Yeah. So we're talking about the nine 11 Memorial in New York and uh, the architect literally calls it the void mm-hmm. that they built, you know? Um, and I, I think it helped me to kind of have a, a visual externalized image for myself. First of all, um, I, in, in the chapter, I talk about um, losing my friend Alex to suicide loss and, uh, and having to figure out what to do with that, not just personally, but also because I was asked to speak at his funeral. And I think like in that moment, especially because we're preachers, right? I think we have these years of sort of instincts that we've been trained up in to try to explain things, to try to comfort people, to try to connect the dots, to try to make things make sense. And mm-hmm. I think um, when I was trying, trying to figure out like how to move through that grief, both for me and for others... Just the, uh, the kind of bravery of saying, we're just going to build a void. It's not going to explain anything. It's not, gonna, it's not even going to comfort us. It's, it's just going to give witness to what was lost, you know? Um, and that kind of working through that brought me to a point where I feel like I was able to find my footing on how to speak at Alex's funeral. And I felt really free after I worked through that to say, I'm just going to build a void for Alex and just say, here's who Alex was. We're going to give witness to him and not try to like paper over it, not try to explain it, not try to make it make sense. Cause I think those moves are really often ways of bypassing our pain rather than um, turning toward it. And Pardon, so, let me interrupt you there yeah. to explain it away is a way to bypass pain. Yeah. Like when we get an excuse, like, oh, this is what happened. This is why it happened. And therefore we can move on. Is that what you think is happening? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Book of Job, some people would argue is a, is a treatise in this. In the book of Job, Job is suffering and it doesn't make any sense because he's a righteous man, but his friends try to make sense of it. His friends try to say, well, surely here's the cause and effect scenario that explains why you're facing this loss. And the reason Job is the hero is not because he doesn't curse God. It's not, it's because he refuses to accept that. Um, there's a, a term in psychology, which is cognitive closure, which is the brain's uh, sort of desperate desire to make sense of things and to put formulas on things and um, cognitive closure is not always bad but i think in suffering it's often the thing that causes us to make bad moves and like in job the whole transformative movement for job is he simply doesn't do it and then god doesn't give him any kind of good answer for his suffering he all all god does in the book of job is sort of berate job for a, a whole chapter with the poetry of the mystery of creation that basically says in a million different ways, Job, there are things that are bigger than you and you're not going to get it. But ultimately, God says Job spoke rightly because Job refused to like embrace uh, a false formula that could wrap all this stuff up. And instead, he lived in the mystery. 
And that's how he becomes the hero at the end of the story. Um, and I think that's the same for us when we mourn. You know, um, it's brave to like just turn toward the loss without explaining it, without bypassing it, without trying to fix it, or without trying to make sense of it. Um, yeah. But I think it's, it's a formula. That, yeah, the formulas don't work. But in that move, I think, is where Jesus says, actually, there's a kind of, kind of mysterious comfort that you're, you're going to bump into, but it's actually only waiting for you after you sit in the mystery of that loss. Yeah, I have a friend who's uh, an oncologist who's told me that sometimes Christians are the ones who have the greatest difficulty uh, grieving. Uh, yeah, and it may be because that we have a propensity to jump to these sort of formulas that are probably the modern equivalent of Job's friends regurgitating. Uh, you know, theologically, it's called you know, Deuteronomic theology, yeah. which is what his friends yeah. were saying. Well, you do good, and then good things happen to you. Um, and so we have these formulas, and so sometimes we bypass the actual uh, healthy grief that we need to experience going through the tragedies of life. Um, so on the other side, though, of the sort of like temptation for uh, simplistic formulas, you talk about one of the blessings that comes, uh, or maybe you use the phrase, a strange power of grief. And here, here's the quote. You say, um, this capacity is what gives grief its strange power, like a nerve ending that's exposed. Our ability to sense the glory in things is what makes such profound pain possible in the loss of those things. Yeah. Uh, unpack that a bit. Um Wait, were you asking me to unpack that? No, I, you, you asked me to unpack that a bit. Say more about that, Jay. <laughs> uh, that's an inside joke between me and Luke. Um, it's such a terrible question. This is not, hey, go on. Okay, uh, here's the quote again. This capacity is what gives grief its strange power. Like a nerve ending that's exposed, our ability to sense the glory in things is what makes such profound pain possible in the loss of those things. Yeah, so this comes down to... A, a view of like the world that we're living in right now that I, I take from a lot of people who've pointed out that um, in the modern world, we've kind of lost uh, what some call like an enchanted view of, of everything around us. Um, when the psalmists speak of like the glory of God being revealed in the heavens or of God bestowing glory on humanity, um, a lot, many would argue that we've lost an understanding that, um, there's more to what we see around us than what we see. Mm-hmm. And so um, when the psalmist says deep calls to deep, I've often wondered if that's a way of saying that there's a depth within you that senses the depth around you. And that depth is, is more than what you taste, touch, smell, see, and hear. It's something of God in everything. And I'm, I'm not like a pantheist here. I'm not saying they're the same thing. But I'm saying God seems to have put something of God in everything. And mm-hmm. whether it's the Imago Dei that we speak of or the glory in the heavens, whatever. Um, and what, like, what I really believe is that, um, especially when you lose a loved one, um, that the loss is more than simply the, the loss of a psychological attachment or kind of an inconvenient psychological reality, even though I, I think it is. I think there's something spiritual and soulful going on there. And it's like the soul in you knows the glory of God in them. And so the mourning, I think, comes from that deepest place inside that mourns the loss of that glory, of that little bit of God that God had put into the world through them. But then, um, so when you do more and when you actually allow yourself to turn toward what you have lost, I think what you're doing is you're kind of reinforcing your conscious connection to that place within. And that actually makes mm-hmm. the pain worse at first because it's, it's like that raw nerve ending that's been cut open. But mm-hmm. if you turn away from it, the tragedy is that you're sort of callousing or numbing or 
disconnecting from that capacity within, which means you're actually cutting yourself off from the possibility of discovering that the glory that you yearn for hasn't actually been diminished or, de- or destroyed. It, it's like, if, if it's of God, it, it can't be destroyed. Surely like surely you can't diminish the quantity of God. And so, mm-hmm. um, and, and this is where things get a little mystical, a little contemplative, but I, I really think a lot of us in kind of everyday experiences of loss and mourning have discovered that somewhere in that path of mourning, the soul meets a kind of a fresh encounter with the fullness of God and the glory of God. And we only got there by turning toward the grief, not by ignoring it. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. I just don't want to talk about that. Uh, there's a seven in me that's just like, yeah, let's not, let's not go there. Um, but unfortunately that is like, yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, yeah, you know, as a seven, obviously these things are not uh, what intuitively come to me, but I feel like that's where most of my growth happens is instead of shortcutting those nerve endings and trying to, you know, um, pretend like they don't exist or numb them or to run away from, I feel like sitting in those is the place where I uh, experience the most growth and there's something because if you cut off the the low end of life, which I think these are describing yeah. the low end parts of life, you also miss the high end parts of life. And to numb to numb anything is to numb everything. Yeah. yeah and I, I right. hear you talking like that. You sense the glory of God in these tragedies. That like in mourning and in emptiness, in loss, that there is a capacity to step into this enchanted view of reality where, you know, Richard Beck, when he talks about the enchanted view, he talks about like, there's this ache that we have because we don't tap into the enchanted view. Yeah. Uh, we don't chant into like tap into this idea that, that the Imago Dei, that the image of God, the presence of God is all around us that we can't flee. As the psalmist says, if I go into Sheol, you're still there. If I go to the highest, you're there. Um, I, I think that's like the paradox that we're invited into is to go, I, I see you in, the mountaintop, but I see you also in the valley and to see God in all things is to be open to all things. And that's like the complexity of it is to go, I, I'm going to embrace the fullness of this as an invitation to meet you. Yeah, that's right. I think, I think that's right. And, and then, you know, just to kind of like pan out a little bit wider, um, what's interesting, what's really interesting then is everything you and I are talking about, this stands at the threshold of the Sermon on the Mount. No. Like everything you and I are talking about is sort of the, the the gateway that Jesus creates at the beginning of his teaching that then leads into all these really radical and powerful ways of living in the world, like loving your enemies yeah. and blessing those who curse you and not exploiting people and trusting God rather than worrying. And we could go on and on and on, but Jesus is, is about to launch into his kind of master treatise on the life of the kingdom of God. Like everything we're called to as disciples of his, but the, like the threshold that he crosses to get into all of that is this strange stuff that we're talking about, which I just find um, bizarre and kind of beautiful and unexpected and so different than the kind of um, like dutiful, dutiful discipleship stuff that sort of skips right over the way that Jesus gets into this, which is like, it's almost like he's saying, before we can work out any of that life that I want to call you to, I, I just, I, I, we're not going to get into any of that until I help you trust that the things that you are running from um, the most difficult parts of your own inner experience. Like we're not going to get into any of that until I teach you to not be afraid of those things. 
and yeah. to kind of embrace the healing work that's going to come when you stop running from them. When Jesus uses that word blessed, there's a lot that people would have assumed that to yeah. be. Uh, was the phrase, um, the, the blissful state of God, is that Dallas Willard? Is yeah, blissful right? existence of the gods. Yeah, that's Willard's phrase. Yeah, and so when Jesus ties that to these low-end states of the human experience, it yeah. had to be quite uh, un- unending, un- unnerving for yeah, the... Yeah, that, this is, and this is why like, um, I just... I just am not a believer in teaching these beatitudes as like straightforward instructions. Cause like when, when you realize that Jesus says blessed are that like that would have invoked an imagination of the deities living without any need, want or suffering. And then he attaches that state of existence to these profound experiences of suffering. It's like, that's your first clue that this is not straightforward. It's strange. It's paradoxical. Um, and th- that, um, it's your first clue. I think that he's inviting you into something kind of radical and transformative. It's not going to fit the buckets in your head. It's not going to fit the categories that you already have. It's, it's your first clue that he wants to sort of disrupt all of that. A, a lot of times we think of Jesus giving commands, do this, yeah. therefore mm-hmm. this will happen. Yeah. This isn't a command to do no. something. It's an invitation yeah. to see God yeah. in somewhere you wouldn't expect him to. Yeah. If I'm, starting to go, okay, I'm, I'm going to see God and this blissful state, th- this blissful existence of the gods, uh, lowercase g there. If I'm going to see God, if I'm going to see this blissful ideal state in the most unblissful, if that's even an idea, part of my life, how would you help me walk into that invitation of Jesus? Yeah, so first of all, I, um, I draw on a story at the end of the book, which has really helped me. Uh, Parker Palmer uh, tells this story, but it, it comes from rabbinical teaching. Um, and the story goes that a rabbi who's teaching his students scripture would always tell them to put the words of God on their hearts, on. And one of the, one of the students said, hey, teacher, why do you say on our hearts? Shouldn't we put them in our hearts, the words of God? And the teacher says, only, only God can put the word in your heart. And so he says, so we rest the words on our hearts, hoping that when our hearts break, the words may fall in. Hmm. And that to me is like a really important way of thinking about what to do with these blessings. So what I mean by that is like, like as I've been talking about the book, some people are like, so what's the practical application? What do I do with this? Mm-hmm. And it's tricky because part of my answer is um, maybe nothing right now. Maybe you just carry these blessings with you until the day that your heart breaks um, whether it's something in the headlines that is just so, I mean, as you and I are talking today, um, the news is sending images of these fires in Hawaii and Maui that are awful. I mean, people are literally jumping into the ocean to not get burned to death from these, these fires that are burning this town. You know, so I don't know how people feel when they, I know for me seeing those images this morning, I felt a little bit of breaking inside. Um, or maybe it's, something really personal, like your partner leaves you or a diagnosis comes through that is terrifying or whatever. Um, but when people ask about the application of these teachings, I'm like, I think it might be the kind of thing where you, you kind of put them in your backpack and you carry them with you until the moment when you need them. And if your life is anything like my life, that moment's going to come sooner than you think. And then it's not you doing the work of these blessings. It's, it's you letting the blessings do their work on you. And you might begin by just saying like, oh man, I, I think I feel a little bit of emptiness inside. And you say, okay, what, what if Jesus calls that blessed? What does that mean then? 
well, maybe I don't have mm. to fill it. Okay, okay. Um, I'm mourning. I, I'm really sad about something. It feels so inefficient to be sad. It feels so worthless to just sit around moping in my grief. So let's move on and get productive and pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. But no, wait, hold on. Jesus says that in your mourning, you are blessed. So maybe don't ignore it. Don't run from it. Don't numb it. Don't let Netflix become your way out of it or substances or, or busyness. You know, don't make yourself invincible to this because you're not, by the way. Um, just, just let the blessing teach you to abide it for a moment. And then just get curious and see if that kind of abiding in it over time yields the kind of comfort or the kind of fullness or the kind of promise that he's been talking about. Hmm. None of this appeals to the ego that wants to be like, tell me what to do and I will get it done. Right? It, just, it has nothing for the ego, which is, I think, probably why we don't know what to do with them. Hmm. So it's an invitation to be open to the words of Jesus that one day when you're open, that we'll make space for them within us. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Hmm. One other move is, um, and other people have pointed this out really helpfully, um, not only are these blessings for you, but they're for the people you love. And so the other, the other benefit of all this maybe is if you're walking with somebody else and they have that emptiness within them or they have that mourning or loss within them, you don't have to fix it for them right? You don't have to fill it for them. If, if, Jesus, if what Jesus says is true, then you can also just sit with them in that empty experience, in that feeling of loss. And I think the other, the other really beautiful thing is that these blessings might help us walk with each other better without that How need so? to fix all of it. How will it help us walk better? Um, by simply resisting the impulse to fix it, yeah. which it so often is motivated by good things and does a lot of damage, you know? How so? How does it do damage? Oh, man. I mean, w- one example to me, right, is like, um, if you've ever faced a really hard loss, you ever been around people who you can tell it's like, they're trying to make you feel better, but really what's going on is that your loss is uncomfortable for them. Yeah. And so they, they need to resolve this so they can feel better. And then they actually end up doing a lot of harm to you by, um, I, I was just talking uh, the other day with a, a dear friend of mine who um, is going through a divorce. And um, he was talking about how some of the people who know that he's going through this, um, they're quick to want to talk about, man, you know, like, let's get excited about this next chapter in your life and all of that. And the more that they do that, the more alone he feels. And the more it exacerbates his own feeling of hurt and loss, because the people who see what he's going through don't know how to sit with what he's going through. Yeah. And so... um, yeah, I just right now have a very clear. I can kind of picture the look on his face when he was talking about the kind of the salt in the wound that was caused by other people who seem to be unable to just kind of sit with the pain that he's in right now. Yeah, I, I think part of the Jewish concept of shiva is like yeah. you sit shiva, like it's literally the idea of sitting low with someone. Yeah, and when someone else's discomfort and pain and suffering requires us to sit low with them. Some of us don't have the emotional flexibility to get that low. Yeah, and so we don't right. want to sit down with them. And so in some ways we're saying, no, no, if you don't stand up, then we're not going to be together. That's right. And the more we say, if you don't yeah. stand up with me, That's... then we're further and farther pushing them away from us. Uh, dude, I, that's a really good image. I really like that. Like there's a difference between trying to help somebody stand up next to you versus getting down on the ground with them. Yeah. Yeah. I would rather someone stand up with me, though, because that means I don't have to yeah. feel it. Because compassion, at its 
sort of linguistic core is passion with or suffering with yeah. and to have compassion is to sit with someone to be with someone and yeah i don't i don't want to do that but in some ways there's an invitation for jesus from jesus to say there's a blessing in those people's situation when they are mourning when they are poor in spirit so if you sit with them in it like you're vicariously in some ways experiencing the blessing too if you're going to be a true friend to go i'm okay, I'm going to step into this loss with you and I'm going to sit in the emptiness and the silence and the absence with you. Yeah, I think that's right. I love that. Hmm. Uh, okay, so the book came out, um, whatever today, uh, eight days, nine days, yeah, and a half yeah. ago, something yeah. like that. What has been uh, your favorite thing to get to talk about that you've been working on probably for years mm-hmm. that you didn't get to you know, share with anyone now that the book's out, you've been talking about it, you've been traveling, speaking places. What's the one thing that you've been most excited to, to share? Uh, excited about, um, uh, there's an idea in the book that evil is a limited resource and it kind of has to do with resurrection and persecution. And um, I, like, I really believe in my bones that it's, it's true. And I think it's also a very Christian conviction that evil is a limited resource. But I think um, a lot of us are facing a lot of evidence that suggests that healing is the exception, not the rule. And that, you know, breakdown, brokenness, entropy, evil, that that's actually sort of the, the more sort of overriding energy. And I just, I just don't believe it. And to kind of get to try to make the case for that, both like theologically and experientially has been really meaningful for me. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've been using that for probably about the last three years How uh, since I stole it from you. Yeah, I mean, I definitely did it in Easter uh, at least <laughs> two years ago. Uh, so I'm glad you're finally saying it out loud, too, because... <laughs> it's a good thing I got I it def- in print so I could, like, trademark that stuff. <laughs> well, technically, uh, this podcast and these comments excluded, I would have actually had an earlier timestamp on that, but oh, we'll just shoot. Not, not look at that. Uh-huh. Uh, anyways, well, hey, uh, I think uh, third time around, I think this is the best conversation we've had about the book. Yeah, I think so, too, yeah. And so maybe your technical difficulties uh, were an example of when the world breaks, that there's a surprising blessing. Oh, that, look at that. Blessed yeah. are those whose podcast tech doesn't work, for theirs, th- theirs will be the best episode. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're owning up to your responsibility and that not working. <laughs> uh, that's good. Uh, but the book is entitled When the World Breaks. And uh, I hey, was... before we before we go, um, you make a lot of jokes about you being a seven who's not good at like uh, sitting in pain or all that stuff. Um, I don't experience you that way at all, man. And when we talk about like friends who walk with one another in the spirit of these blessings, like you're right at the top of the list for me, man. So hmm. jokes aside, that. yeah, you're a, a man who does his work and I'm really grateful for it. Uh, thanks, man. It's very, very generous of you to say that. Um, well, congrats on the book, man. I think it's, a, it's um, I do think it will be a blessing to many people and uh, all my listeners go get a copy of it. Uh, do me a favor my listeners, go get a copy of this book and then leave a review for Jay yeah. on Amazon. It really does make a difference. And even if you're not going to read it, just buy the book and leave a review. Like, that's just a <laughs> charitable thing to do. So, uh, again, the book is entitled When the World Breaks. Jay, thanks for the time. It's been a good one. My privilege, man. Thank you. Thank you.